You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR Digital and Streaming and Podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed, Unemployed Workers, Workers Fight Back. 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 Join your hosts Anne and Kevin, that's me, the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone, Everyone in, in our, our community, community has value. value.
We just heard from Alice Ivy with their song Touch. Uh, Alice Ivy played at a music festival that I went to this time last year called the Lockhart Music Festival, which unfortunately has been cancelled this year. So I'm going to be featuring a bit of the music from that festival last year. Uh, but uh, look, welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back this Friday, the 27th of November. Hi, Anne. How are you? Hello, Kevin. I'm well. How are you? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, good, good. Uh, and this week, Anne, I've dragged in my housemate, Pete, to help us with the conversation. Hi, Pete. Um, hello, Kevin, and hello, Anne. The, the, the guy that actually puts up with you hammering him about modern monetary theory all the time. And yes, and you're 100% correct. <laughs> <laughs> you've, uh, you've read his mind very, very well. Now, this is a loose show this week, Anne. I thought we'd just review some of the stuff that's been happening because there's mm-hmm. been um, a fair amount happening, of course, uh, at, at this present time, we're still waiting to see what uh, Trump's going to do. That's always um, interesting. To, to me, that the whole Trump thing and the whole American thing raises the issue of uh, the importance of mm-hmm. the individual versus the importance of being part of a community, part of society. Here on 3CR, it's, it's community radio, so we're very socially mm-hmm. minded. Uh, I've been reading this book, as I've been uh, telling you about, called Democracy in Chains, and it goes right back to the early stages of the libertarian movement. Oh, the libertarians are rearing their ugly head. Oh, just their heads. (laughs) Yeah, well, I never never really understood um, Mm -hmm. much about the libertarian thing. It sort of kind of sounded fair enough, you know, um, I'm an individual and I want my rights. Right. But then I find out that its origins come uh, come from the early American slave slaving times where where you had rich property owners who were demanding Mm -hmm. that their rights to run their slaves however they wanted needed to be respected, which I just find an enormous contradiction in terms. (laughs) So, If you want to talk about, you know, connections between individuals versus our all being in our little isolated bubbles, because I did live in the US for a while, and one of the fascinating things to me that kept coming up was how that 300 years of uh, black slavery still affects, like, not just America, but it sort of spills out into the world as well. Like, it has so many ramifications. And so you're discovering the, the libertarian line there. Well, I never realised its origins. I thought it was kind of like, uh, it wasn't what I thought it was. But it turns out, from this book that I'm reading, that it's just about rich people resenting the fact that government can uh, interfere <laughs> with how they spend their wealth. They had to protect their liberties. So this is all coming out of um, Virginia, and I think the Chicago School of Economists uh, fell onto it quite well. There was a fellow called Calhoun who was involved in the early US episodes of it back in the slave days, but that was taken up by uh, Buchanan and... Mm-hmm. The, the the conservatives the 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 alt right um, and very much endorsed by the Chicago School of Economics to the point where it's, it's kind of become common behaviour now well common it's commonly accepted and now people fly under the libertarian banner like they do in the states saying that mm-hmm. I need to protect my rights and don't force all this socialist stuff on us like universal health care and and uh, and the welfare <laughs> state <laughs> socialized health care. <laughs> the PR job that the that the right the right wing have done have, have done a very good job where you have all these people mm-hmm. arguing for their liberty even though in practical terms it's against their own self interest and and we have the same thing in Australia we where all these people are sort of uh, kind of like just re- recently with the Dan Andrews um, uh, COVID thing right and you've got all these people who demand that their right to not wear mm-hmm. a mask and, and go wherever they want is more important than the the common good in uh, you know a pandemic where there's going to be ramifications for the entire population if it spreads. It's that, that's very much part of that whole libertarian um, uh, frame of mind. Yes. So I'm wondering how you're connecting this with neoliberalism then. How are you connecting the libertarian stream with the neoliberal one? My definition of neoliberalism, if I've read it correctly, says that the individual is more important than society Mm. and if an individual can reach their full economic potential, that's going to be good for society. And it's this kind of greed is good mentality that was established particularly through the 80s and the 90s. And and that's been accepted. That's been accepted on large now. So that's very much a um, greed is good, get the government out of my way, don't inhibit me from being uh, an individual uh, and let me reach my full economic potential. I'm wondering um, 
what your mate Pete there is thinking because I can see he doesn't seem to be nodding or shaking his head. <laughs> so I think he's being an individual over there, having his own individual thoughts about it all. <laughs> he's protecting his personal space. I used to, I used to play a lot of cards as a young man. Now, I'm interested how long you were in America for and at what stage. Yeah, well, I was over there for about 15 years. I first went to America in 1985 and um, at the height of, of Ronald Reagan's power. And I knew I knew very little about American history, and and if you'd asked me if if John F. Kennedy at that stage was a Democrat or a Republican, I wouldn't have told you. I would have nominally thought he was a Republican because, in Australia, we have this attitude that the right are established old money. You know, they're old Liberal Party blokes from the Melbourne Club. Whereas in America, when I was there, the Democrats were seen as the old established money. They all they all lived in Martha's Vineyard, and they all came from New England, and they were all Kennedys, and and they were all you know, people of, of wealth and of influence and of some sort of, uh, you know, establishment. And Right. Did you ever make the mistake of mixing up who the Confederates were? <laughs> no, no, I knew that, but I was surprised to find out that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican because the whole idea now of, of sort of since Reagan and through Bush into Trump is that the Democrats are all lefties and socialists and pseudo-communists, but that's not their origins. When I was over there, the Democrats were seen as establishment and as money and as, you know, the people, you know, the drain the swamp mentality that, that Trump uses, which was hilarious in, in, in its effect insofar as how well it worked. Because there's the, the, the Republicans in America from my couple of visits over there are the people who've, I suppose, not overly well educated. Maybe they're tradies. Um, they've done well and and got themselves into a nice suburban part of whatever city that they live in and they see the left as people who want to take that off them Mm -hmm. so they they rally behind the reagans and the bushes and the trumps because they see Mm. they see the left as these progressive forward thinkers and who want to give their money to drug addicts and alcoholics and bums and artists and and musicians and mm-hmm. and that was the when I got when I went there in 85 that was the first thing that kind of struck me yeah. the thing that amazed me is when I came back to Australia is it John Howard tapped into that mm. yeah he yeah. got the guy who was who left school at year nine, didn't have a cent to his name, and by the time he was 30, he'd managed to buy a house in the outer suburbs of where I was living in Sydney. And mm. John Howard said, if you vote for Paul Keating, you might lose it, but if you vote for me, I'll let you keep right. it. You won't go right. anywhere else. You'll live in that suburb in your fibro house for the rest of the life, but I won't threaten mm-hmm. you. I won't threaten you for it. And they've gone, that's good enough for me. Yeah, it's one strand of that thinking. It's a really clever way of dividing the working class, actually. Absolutely. One of the Howard elections, there was a, a, a tradie in, in his uh, fluoro gear saying, you know, I'm going to vote for the, the party that looks after workers. That's why I'm voting uh, for the coalition. And I almost fell off my chair, you know. So they've been able to pinch the message both in America and in Australia. that It's this kind of blending of, of, um, of who's supposed to be representing you. That Reagan era was one of the sort of eras of starting to really formulate that message around picking on the people who relied on any form of social security to get by. Victim blaming the poor. Because I, I sort of travelled off the beaten track for a period of time and a lot of the people I met were people that had started digging ditches in a road for $3 an hour and had worked themselves up to, to a position because they had a, a work ethic and they thought that was the way to go and they just think that's how everyone should do it. So so you can't give money to a bloke just because he can sing or paint a picture or write a book. Why doesn't he go and dig a ditch like I had to do? That's the spectrum and that's the depth of their thought. Why can't he be like me? And that's what Reagan and, and Bush and, and Howard out here and now Morrison, that's, that's where they tap into people. There's a lot of statistics on what services Rough Sleep is used, how often they use them. They know how many times they've been in and out of each and every service. Then nothing about what their feelings were, how it felt, what their tips were, what were their suggestions, how did they survive? I think what that shows is that whatever people may think, the stereotype, in, in especially in the right-wing media, about who homeless people are and what their character is, we can vouch that people who have had a lived experience of sleeping rough care about themselves and others and the community. You know, we found that 50% of the people we surveyed didn't have a public housing application. Some of them had slept rough for over 10 years. 
So it just really, it fills a real gap. And I think it's really important that, you know, everyone be given access to information. Dresia, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Amazing Moaning Lisa with their song uh, I Want a Girl. That's a band that Pete and I saw at the Lockhart Music Festival last year. But we're talking about how uh, ordinary workers have switched their allegiance from traditional uh, parties that look after, you know, like Labor looks after workers, uh, who now um, vote for the coalition. Pete, where do you work and what's your experience been? I work, I, I work in, in HR. I'm a HR manager for a transport company. I've got a, a lot of staff across a very wide spectrum, but I've got a lot of people that are on, what, an average wage, 65000 to 75000 a year, that have managed to get their houses in Pakenham and Craggyburn and Werribee and Wyndham Vale and all that sort of stuff. And 
they think the Liberal Party is the is the party that's going to look after them. They think the Labor Party is going to give all of the money that you know that they've mm. worked for doing the jobs that they do to somebody who doesn't deserve it, mm-hmm. and they think that Scott Morrison is one of them. Mm. And it, it's amazing how much I hear that. Interesting. So what's missing from that worldview is. Yes, maybe there is a trajectory if you work hard, you know, put your nose to the grindstone that you'll, you know, save money and you'll be able to get a mortgage and look after the family and and all the rest of it. But what they're not seeing is the framework that enabled that pathway to exist. And they also don't see the fact that the same framework denies that pathway to other people. So Kevin and I often talk about the fallacy of composition. I just love that I've discovered that through modern monetary theory, which is this idea that you can um, generalise from your own experience to say, well, if I could do it, therefore other people can do it. If if it works for me, it must work for the whole of society. That is to ignore macroeconomics. That is to ignore uh, how effects cascade and, and affect other things, you know. And also to ignore how it's changing over time, like the the possibilities and opportunities that were available for our generation <laughs> are not there now. They're just simply not there for the, say, the 20-year-olds now who are going to go into student debt if they try and educate themselves. They're more likely to get a casual position now than a permanent position. So neoliberalism has changed that and the people are hurting from all generations. And as you say, there is a diagnosis for why that hurt is there. And the neoliberals have managed to propagate all these myths about we're the ones that are going to make sure, A, that you keep what you've achieved and also that you're, we're not going to hurt you. It's like nine out of ten Australians will be on some form of social welfare at some point in their lives. And so so to, to look upon people receiving unemployment benefits or sole parent pensions or whatever, to look at them as the other and as the problem is um, it's just such a false dichotomy that apparently is sold, like you say. And one of the one of the biggest myths that needs to to be quashed, something that would change this attitude immediately, is if people understood the relationship between taxation and government spending. That taxation doesn't yeah. fund government spending because this is used as the argument yep. the whole time. My taxes are paying for your welfare, and that's just not true. It's mm-hmm. It's complete nonsense. The, the the government, as we've said, and people say, oh, it must be, you know, what else do our taxes do? And we've got to remind our listener, mm. is it Larry or, or Lucy or Larissa? The listener. <laughs> Larissa. We <laughs> 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 remind the listener that that, um, that we just had two to $300 billion worth of input into the economy and it wasn't paid for by your taxes and it never will be. It's just an accounting entry, that the, the government didn't have to go and collect the taxes. And even by their own orthodox uh, orthodox understanding of the economy, they borrow the money from themselves. They instruct the RBA to create the currency. They inject it into the economy. And they then uh, have a procedure that they call full funding to pay themselves back. And they can take as long as they like to pay themselves back or they can default and it will mm-hmm. make no difference. So, so that's that's if they if you use the orthodox economic understanding, that's the reality. So, so this whole thing about uh, you know the debt for your kids and your debt for your grandkids and the rest of it is nonsense. It's it's um it, mm. it's a self imposed discipline that is of spurious origins. Um, the reason that uh, government spending is supposed to be kept under control is because the the orthodox theory is that if the government creates too much currency, it's going to cause massive inflation. Well, the government just did create a massive injection into the economy <laughs> and inflation is going backwards. We have to keep on repeating Is anyone this. watching, do you think? Did anyone notice <sighs> that happen? <laughs> they don't pay attention. So, so all the reasons that they've created for uh, trying to constrain mm. government spending and, and trying to mm-hmm. demonise the welfare state are, are without foundation. We often hear that modern monetary theory lifts the veil. It does show you how some of these arguments are based on a completely mythological understanding of how the economy works. How do you reckon it would go if if people understood that their taxes weren't funding uh, people on the dole, weren't funding the age pension, weren't weren't funding any of that stuff, that all of that funding just came directly from currency creation through the RBA, as it does. Uh, we're not making this stuff up. This is That's the procedure. A bill gets passed in Parliament, it gets forwarded to Treasury, Treasury instructs the RBA, and you get a cheque. 
That that's the procedure. No taxation, no selling of bonds. Uh, if people understood that their taxes weren't paying for that, that the taxes were being used for other things, well, there'd be a riot because um, you know people would be very angry uh, that all this money has been taken from them on a false pretense. But that is the reality. The understanding you would have is that money is a public utility and that its main function is to move resources around. And so then I think you would end up with a, the the argument about, well, who should get the resources, which is what's been veiled behind a lot of this misunderstanding of how money really works. And so you'll still get people who say, well, I work hard, therefore I deserve, you know, a nice house with a view. and Which brings us back to the original point of this whole libertarian mm. uh, frame of mind. People think that because uh, because they have money, they should be able to do whatever they want but they don't understand that they're actually part of a very socialist system of uh, currency distribution and, and economics, that they are part of a society, and that anybody who thinks that um, you know they can get wealthy just by themselves is fooling themselves. They, they need social infrastructure around them to, to have an existence. Mm. Well, see, I would say that the them, <laughs> so the them who have been in power and have been able to propagate some of these libertarian ideas. This is where I was saying there's a difference between what people say and what people believe and how they behave. And I sort of feel like that uh, these people that you're reading about in this book, they still had to get get together with like-minded other people in order to make stuff happen. I'd sort of question your framing there around individualism versus collectivism or whatever. Because I think, you know, all the people that meet together in Davos <laughs> every year or whatever and, and talk about how the world's going to run, they are in their own little collective there. So I prefer to use the word elitism than individualism because I think it's elitism is the, is the driving ideology. Well, if some of the people that you're mixing with uh, have a surname called Koch and there's a couple of them who are brothers uh, and they've got some other uh, wealthy uh, benefactors, <laughs> it's, it's no accident that the right-wing uh, side of politics is very well funded and that these people who are saying, leave me alone and stop interfering with all of my wealth, these people have funded these enormous think tanks uh, and created a lot of bogus economics mm. around uh, why they should be left alone and why they should be allowed to accumulate wealth and why they should be able to suppress ordinary workers. You know, they'll tell you that there's uh, broader economic factors, but the basis of it is they just get richer. It's it's driven by greed. That's the philosophy behind the inception of the IPA. Yeah. And now it gets referred to by by every media outlet known to man as some sort of voice of of reason and and integrity, and it's a think tank designed to run a right wing agenda to sell the ABC and reduce wages and reduce company tax and do all those things, and yet they're they're seen as some sort of august body that needs to be consulted when you run a news item. And the IPA remind us what that stands for: the Institute of Public Affairs. So it started by Rupert Murdoch's father. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Started by Frank Murdoch, absolutely. Isn't our local member Tim Wilson um, an IPA person, Pete? He most certainly was, as is uh, Senator Patterson, um, as was uh, quite a few people. Andrew Bolt was in the IPA. Um, I'm pretty sure that um, Michael Sooker was in the IPA. Um, it's quite a few, quite a few Liberal Party people have come out of the IPA straight into to politics. Wow, wow! On that note, we're going to break for a song, guys, because uh, you know this is a casual show. We've been talking too much. Hi everyone, I'd just like to do my latest song. It's called uh... <laughs> <laughs> Up Yours. Eh? <laughs> You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment. Here on 3CR Community Radio. There's kind of a lot of of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving. Um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture 
of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio
OCR. Here to stay. We just heard Lovers Part 1 and 2 from Alpine, another great band that played at the Lockhart Music Festival last year that isn't on this year, which is very sad. So this week we're, we're talking about how the conservative wealthy have manipulated the message and have convinced ordinary workers that they're part of their club, their elite club, uh, so that they focus on their individual merit and turn their back on society. They victim blame the poor. And we're kind of trying to figure out how this came about. And to me, to my mind, a lot of it has to do with this the selling of aspiration. Not long ago, I saw an interview with a woman who was working hours from the bank that she worked in. She had to travel a couple of hours each way at least. And she's looking after a couple of kids and she's being paid the minimum wage. And they had the CEO of that bank explaining why it was that in an organisation that was so wealthy that and he was earning millions, yeah. why was it that they had employees who were barely making ends meet? And his explanation was, well, mm. she could be me one day. And, <laughs> and you just think to yourself, no, she can't. She, most, the vast majority what of people who work in the bank don't end up being the CEO. That's just a statistical fact. Yeah, well, that's their fault for not working hard enough. That, that kind of argument drives me nuts. It's kind of like, you know, um, in sport where uh, the, the winner says, um, uh, oh, yeah, all you've got to do is believe in yourself and train hard and you can win. Well, most people don't win, mm, and they train mm. really hard, and they believe in mm. themselves. <laughs> so it's it's this kind of um, just nonsense, aspirational stuff, which which is mm, people mm. like political parties feed into that, and so they they get away with ripping people yeah. off and keeping them suppressed just because they keep some false hope uh, glimmering in the distance for them, and and I think that's dangerous. Yeah, it's a false idea of possibility, isn't it? It's, it actually links back to what we're talking about um, with the stigma and the um, vilification of unemployed, you know, that it's the individual's fault if they do well, as we're just saying, it's the individual's fault if they do badly as yeah. well. Yeah, You know, and we shouldn't therefore have to squander our hard-earned taxes on helping those who have obviously made the wrong choices. So it's a, it's a really tight narrative. It's really hard to break. And that's the fallacy of composition stuff that you're talking about before. Mm. You know, somebody says, "Hey, mm. I'm doing well," and all all I had to do to do well was was work hard and put my shoulder to the the wheel, and that's why I'm incredibly successful. Ergo, the flip side of that is the reason you're not successful is because you're a lazy lazy asshole and and, and uh, or you're a bit stupid and it's your own fault. Uh, it it's mm. presumes that there's equal opportunity and that there's a, enormous enormous amounts of opportunity available for everybody when there simply isn't, especially in a, a society that is exaggerating its inequality. It, that that becomes mm. less and less possible for more and more people to to even get an even break. Um, and yet this this mm. aspirational lie is is sold to people as as a reason to accept their bad lot mm. because one day it's going to get better. Mm. Rubbish. Australia shares very, very, very similar philosophies to America. If you look at the Academy Awards, most movies that win Best Picture are about the guy who's kind of started with nothing and he overcomes adversity mm-hmm. and there he is at the mm. end of the movie. He gets the girl and he gets the business and he makes all the money and he wins the awards and he, he's the best player in basketball or he's the Super Bowl champion and everything. And that's how Americans see their country and we're a bit the same, you know. Aussie spirit, good old Aussie spirit. What the fuck's that? You know, like, oh, don't worry about him. He's an Aussie, you know. That makes all the difference. And you're going, no, he's not. He's a human being. Like Fred Bloggs from South Africa or, or you know, fucking Juan Estefano in Spain. He's a human being. He's not. He's an Aussie, though. And us Aussies, we overcome adversity and we win, you know. And there's this whole thing that goes on how we how we perceive ourselves, you know. I saw this film the other day uh, on NITV called uh, Jetta. Have you heard of this? It's a... A 1950s Australian movie, and the two lead roles in this movie were two uh, Indigenous Australians, two Aborigines. And I thought, you beauty, this will be kind of interesting. And simply what they did was they they turned the Australian outback into a Western. And I th- I'm pretty sure that they even had covered wagons with horses. And and, and Jetta was this Jetta was this Aboriginal girl who had been brought up. Um, in a civilized manner, you know, by by Western standards, I couldn't watch too much of it because it was it, it was it was just an abomination of a movie, as far as so, I could see. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and she fell for this guy who was a native Australian, 
and he rocks in and he's got the the little uh little red uh, wrap around his his midriff uh he's as tall and strong and he's carrying spears and they turned him into a Tarzan character. He, at one stage of the movie, they're on the bank there and this crocodile sits there with its jaws wide open, hissing and, and growling at, at uh, Jeddah. And, and the, the Aboriginal dude <laughs> jumps into the water after the crocodile, with his, pulls his knife out, wrestles with the crocodile and, <laughs> and cuts oh, no, it open and stabs it. crocodile wrestling thrown in. <laughs> and I'm thinking there's, there's no way in hell <laughs> that... <laughs> that a native Australian would yeah, would yeah, be yeah. so disrespectful to their environment yeah. to go and kill something for no apparent reason. That just yeah. was, that's big great movie, movies <laughs> transposed onto the Australian <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile, I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Jane. 
Hi, this is Ed Cooper, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on 3CR with Anne and Kev. Hi, this is Ed Cooper, and you're listening to Anne and Kev on 3CR with their Unemployed Workers Fight Back program. That's my three triple M version. Thank you, Ed, for those very kind words. Uh, now, before Ed, we heard from Blake Scott, Blake Scott of the Peep Temple, who's now gone out solo, who's doing his own thing. He had his song called uh, Bull Float Zen. Uh, Peep Temple had that song, Cheryl, you know, uh, it's not right for you, Cheryl, uh, which I like quite a lot. He didn't play at the, didn't play at the Lockout Music Festival, but I have seen him elsewhere, and it'd be nice to see him at a festival soon. Getting back to this uh, individual versus society uh, thing that we're talking about, you know, and uh, we've been talking about the US a lot because you see in the US in particular, uh, you, you're supposed to be a self-made man. And, you know, I say man because it's very male-orientated society over there. But you, you've got to be a self-made person and you shouldn't be falling back on government. We've got the same thing here, you know. If, you, if you're on the dole, you're a dole bludger and and uh, you need to pull yeah. yourself up by your bootstraps. And it, it's kind of like successful people ignore the fact that they need a well-functioning and well-provisioned society to succeed in the first place, that that having uh, having a good society, having a good mm-hmm. cooperative social basis uh, allows an individual to flourish. Uh, and it seems that they completely disregard the fact that they're not s- individuals, that they're, they're part of a society and that society has, has enabled them to flourish. They seem to fail to recognise the, um, the the social base from where they come. Well, do you think that, like, we have to assume that they're not stupid, right? Because but, they're winning. <laughs> they're not stupid. They're very, very clever. But Yeah. So so I don't think fail to recognise is a part of it, right? I, this is where I come back to my elitism theory, which is that um, they they actually don't want social good. They don't want the public good. They do want a railway line if it goes from a coal mine to a, to a port. Well, they don't care about the cleaning lady visiting her aunt, you know, over in such and such and making sure she's got a good bus connection or whatever. So I think they understand the need for infrastructure, but it's just about who gets the benefit of it. I mean, I agree with you that there's, I think the populist idea of these libertarian ideas is that oh you know i i've worked hard for myself and i do xyz myself and you know i'm gonna be off i guess off the grid with my um cache of arms and (laughs) survive the the armageddon or whatever it is i think the the people who are doing the the big picture planning they still recognize the need for some kind of um framework it's just that they want to control the framework yeah, well, and they they say that it should be minimal, that you only need mm. a, a bare minimal level of service from government. But I reckon they're lying through their teeth. I, I don't, I don't think. I think they understand that they can utilize uh, the public, the the public sector, mm. to their own advantage. Oh, definitely. Quite well, and they have, and they do. They just don't tell anybody. They say, "Oh, we need minimal government." But we need a diesel rebate, and we need a um, uh, we need a new train line from from Adani through to you know, Mackay or somewhere, mm. um, uh, because that's for that's that's going to benefit everyday workers. When it's not going to benefit everyday workers, it's going to benefit yeah. Clive Palmer, who's setting up a, a coal mine next to the Adani one, you know, and and he chipped in for the last election. So they're mm. very good at disguising that sort of stuff, and they're very good at pretending. Like like this whole thing with um. Job seeker and job keeper, and the the huge amount of money that they've spent. This is the same government that came in under Tony Abbott, talking about the catastrophe mm-hmm. of the deficit that was going to wipe out our, our whole economy, and how they had to come in and turn it all around mm. because you can't run deficits because it's just going to mm-hmm. be the end of the world. Mm. That was their entry into this term of politics, and then we had Turnbull, and now we've got Morrison, and now we've got a deficit, which makes the original one that they came in on look like play lunch and they're saying oh but it's all okay i mean and and people believe it they swallow it up they go i don't understand why a population can't see the 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 blatant contradiction Mm. it's 
Well, yeah. they're still spinning a line. So, so the story at the moment is that all of this spending, which we knew was always possible, um, and we knew that deficits weren't a problem, but now they're saying, well, this is the exception. It's because we're in a COVID pandemic crisis. And so we can do this stuff when there's, you know, a real crisis going on. Uh, but at some point we will have to return to trying to, to do surpluses. And so that'll be their excuse to go back to more of an austerity line. But they will spend as much as they need, you know, in order for the economy not to completely fall over. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they're not going to spend... They're not going to spend where we want, you know, where we'd like to see them spend, and they're not going to spend as much as they need to. I think they understood that um, in Australia we have the second highest level of personal debt in the developed world, and most mm -hmm. of that is tied up in real estate, and and a lot of that real estate uh, mm -hmm. is investment properties, uh, which are mm -hmm. being rented out. So I reckon the only reason they were so on board with with a job keeper and job seeker was because they understood that if people couldn't pay their rents, then the property investment market would fall and there would be a collapse. They weren't they weren't worried about the renters. They were worried about no. the landlords and they're worried about the banks because if the landlords aren't, uh, if they're not receiving rent, then they're not going to be able to pay their mortgages, which means the banks who they just navigated their way through this Royal Commission and have come out the other side with this, Crazy deregulation of of, uh, of loans, so that uh, what, what did they, what did they say? Mm. Josh Frydenberg said that the the current mm. regime of lending practices is it's too restrictive. It's too restrictive. Yeah. We need to have we need to we need people to take responsibility for their own loans and take take risks, and we need mm -hmm. less bank regulation. Individual responsibility. <laughs> Again, that's the the idea of individualism. Individual responsibility is covering up the fact that, um, you know, we're going to let banks actually screw people even more than they have been. <laughs> I just find it amazing that we've come out of this Royal Commission and that's their, after less than a year, they've gone, all right, yeah, we need to loosen everything up uh, and make make lending more risky because the economy won't survive unless unless we enter into this this cowboy era that we just came out of. And, and anyway, so there we go. So yeah. that was the motivation for the, the input of funds. It wasn't for uh, you know people paying their rent or ordinary workers. It was to look after uh, landlords. It was to look after banks. Uh, and, and they've succeeded. Yeah. A lot of that um, uh, JobKeeper and JobSeeker stuff ended up flowing through to uh, paying dividends for large corporations. You know, if you've got a, a large organisation mm -hmm. with, with a, a large workforce... And you're getting seven hundred and fifty dollars per head per week for each of those um, for each of those uh, workers that you, that's in your organisation. That's a lot of money flying through there. It's, it's kept a lot of these these zombie kind of businesses going, um, and and so that uh, funneled through to pay shareholders um, at record dividends through the middle of an economic crisis. Mm. Bizarre. Mm -hmm. But that comes back mm. to what I was saying before: is that it's this whole philosophy is targeted at a certain uh, group of people that the conservative governments see as people that can be got who may be you know nominally swinging voters or even maybe nominally when when they really sit down and think about it labor voters but they appeal to them and this 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 whole thing about what Frydenberg said about freeing up the money again is again to get people to mm. go out and buy fucking houses again so that they can go and get get credit and get loans and buy houses again and keep the housing market going and fall mm. back into that 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 era I can tell you with JobKeeper, particularly in the company that I work for, most people have put it in the bank. The tax cut that came through about four or five weeks ago, I can tell you because I control mm -hmm. the I control the situation. 85% of people mm -hmm. at work put it on their superannuation. So it doesn't no. go out into the public purse. It doesn't no. It doesn't buy an extra two cups of coffee from no. Joe Blow's Cafe or, or Freddie, Blo Freddie Bloggs, you know, uh, Indian restaurant. They put it on their superannuation. Everything gets to retired debt or, or, or to some future future benefit to them down the track. That's why they say they haven't spent enough. We've, they've spent enough for people to start paying down their debts, but not enough for the demand to be stimulated. So that's what we mean when they say they haven't spent enough. Apart from the fact that JobSeeker and JobKeeper, in our opinion, were introduced mainly to look after investment property owners and the banks, one thing I found interesting was that when the government realised that a lot of people who aren't normally unemployed were going to lose their jobs, I reckon they were embarrassed. 
about the appalling state of affairs, the, the incredibly low rate that uh, that unemployment benefits uh, were at, and so they doubled it um, to to hide hide their shame at how how mean and nasty and horrible they are to uh, to the unemployed normally. Uh, you know, and of course, if you got a job, you got job keeper, and and that was kind of like a reward for having a job. It, it, as as things wind off, you can see they're lining themselves up to start punishing uh, the poor and the unemployed again. Uh, and the the main problem I have with this is that if you have an economic system that sets an artificially high unemployment rate to put downward pressure on wages and make people who own business richer and more profitable, you have a duty of care to look after the unemployed that you've created. If you've got the option to to give them a job and you decide to keep them unemployed, you, you as a society, we as a society have a, a duty of care to look after the people that we've thrown on the scrap heap. And uh, we can't go back to where we were before. We need to significantly raise the rate. Can't go back to the ridiculous levels of uh, unemployment benefits that we had. But uh, look, Anne, Pete, we're running out of time. Anne, you've let me rabbit on for too long. Uh, we've got to make room for Mafalda coming up next. But uh, our next show is on Friday, the 11th of December. What have you got lined up for us, Anne? We're going to hear the next part of our interview with Victor Quirk, which is a, a great a great discussion about a very important topic to unemployed people. I like Victor. He's very uh, he's very listenable. He's a great guy. He's full of great stories. Yep. And thank you, Peter, for coming along and filling in today, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, very much appreciated. As 95% of guests say on the 7.30 report, it's been a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. See you later, Anne. See you, both. See you, Kevin. See you, Pete. See you, Anne. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I quite oh. enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got a multiplier of pleasure here. Doubly pleasurable. So it will be pleasurable for you in the first place, and it will be pleasurable for me. It's twice as pleasurable as the quarter one. That's a good thing. Double pleasure. What could go wrong? listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.